Moving underground. When the Germans set me free from Saint-Gilles, they gave me a warning and a letter of instruction. I was to report to the police chief in Wavre within 24 hours. If I failed to report in Wavre, I would be arrested again. But I couldn't report to Wavre. It was just a dot on the map to me. I'd never been there. I knew that even without civil records and official inquiries, the police chief would easily discover that my identity was false. I decided I'd better get out of Brussels or disappear underground. Another prisoner, who had been released from Saint-Gilles at the same time, was going to the Gare du Nord, a train station in Brussels, to take a train home. I tagged along with him and noticed a Salvation Army hostel near the Gare du Nord. When we reached the station, I said goodbye to the other fellow. It had grown dark by this time. Retracing my steps, I went to the Salvation Army hostel and was welcomed in. They gave me a bowl of soup and told me that I could sleep there for one night. The following day, I walked around Brussels wondering what to do next. All kinds of schemes entered my head. I thought of finding some Jews. I saw a man on the street who I thought was a Jew and followed him. He tried to avoid me, but I collared him. Shoving him into a corner, I grabbed him by the throat and said, I know that you're a Jew. Don't deny it. I'm a Jew too. I want you to help me. You have to give me shelter or tell me where to find other Jews. I'm here alone. Don't know anybody. He was scared, and he tried to shake me off. Finally, he gave me an address and told me how to get there. I arrived at the address and discovered the offices of the Association of Jews in Belgium, which was similar to a Jewish council. I went in. The people there told me the situation in Brussels was desperate for Jews, and the only thing to do was give myself up. This was the same advice I had received from the Jewish council in the Netherlands. Surrender to the Germans. I realized I was in a trap and escaped from the spot as fast as I could. Luckily, I got away, even though the Germans could have been watching the place. I decided then that I would never again have anything to do with the Jewish councils or similar organizations. I would never go near them again. I would never appeal to them for help. I wanted nothing to do with them. I wanted nothing from them. Then I remembered the Austrian couple I had met through Pifka's uncle, and whose flat Pifka and I had visited. So racking my memory, I traced my way to the statue of Mannequin Peace, and from there I managed to find the flat. The woman remembered me. She was very friendly and kind. Her husband had been arrested by the Gestapo, and she was in a fairly safe position because she had a German passport, since Hitler had annexed Austria in 1938. As a German and a Gentile, she wasn't under suspicion. However, this woman was actually active in the Belgian underground. That night, she took me to stay at another flat. Then she spread the word about me to others in the resistance. I was shuffled from one flat to another for several nights. A few days later, I decided to venture outside Brussels to the suburb where Pifka's uncle lived. I wanted to try to locate him and maybe Pifka. His uncle wasn't there anymore and the neighbors had no views of him or Pifka, but they recognized me and were pleased to see me. They invited me into their house. I had left my phylacteries with them, and right away the woman went to a cupboard and returned soon, saying, Here, here are your holy objects. She didn't know what to call them. Here they are, she said. Do you want to take them with you? I said, No. Thanks very much. I can't take them with me. I don't know where I'm going. After a short visit, I headed back to the city.
The people I was staying with in Brussels were all in the Belgian resistance movement called the Vite Brigade. At first, they were suspicious of me, thinking I might be a spy. I told them that I wasn't really Jan von Capella, that I used that name. I said my real name was Eli Hart and that I was Dutch. The Austrian woman accepted me for what I said I was, since she'd met me under that name when I had first come from the Netherlands. Then, quizzing me themselves, the others became very interested in me after I told them about my Swiss and other jail experiences. They wanted people like me to join the underground army to do illegal work and sabotage. They induced me to join them. After a while, they emphasized, all of us will go to England to be trained as commandos for the eventual invasion of Europe. This prospect appealed to me. I was longing to become a fighter of some sort. Connected with them, I could look forward to serving in the regular British army, the commandos, or some other force, and fighting the Nazis in the open. Therefore, I attached myself to the Vita Brigade, which also seemed to be the only way to sustain myself. There were few means of surviving unless one was part of an organization. Our group always met on the Rue Verte, near the Gare du Nord, a slummy red-light district with a floating sea of unsavory types and questionable enterprises. It was the least conspicuous place for the underground to meet. Our group organized and carried out raids and attacks, particularly to obtain ration tickets. Everybody had to have ration tickets simply to buy basic food, and most underground people didn't have them. We stole the stamps from the administrative offices that issued them. In the daytime, when the offices were open, we would rush in waving pistols and demand all the tickets, moving quickly and getting away fast. We were armed with pistols for show, but we didn't use force unless we had to. The people we confronted usually knew they couldn't resist us successfully, so they handed over the tickets without commotion. Some officials actually cooperated with us. They were probably sympathetic to our cause. Others tried to resist. Sometimes there were German guards on duty at the locations. We tried to avoid them by either striking when they weren't around or sneaking in and out through a back or side door so they wouldn't detect us. We also set explosives at bridges, tunnels, and railway overpasses. Our goal was to disrupt the transportation system to stop the German movement of ammunition and soldiers. I teamed up with people who were experts in explosives, some of whom were engineers. Most often, I acted as a lookout for them, and they did the skilled work that I wasn't trained to do. My job was to guard them, alert them, and cover their retreat. These maneuvers were offensive attacks. We tried to do the utmost damage to the Germans and were ready to shoot if we were in danger. At times, we had to use our pistols, but this made us especially vulnerable because the Germans were equipped with superior weapons. Shooting was our last resort. Sometimes we ambushed and shot at German staff cars to try to kill specific officers. It was difficult to know how many we hit because we had to escape from the scene quickly. I was always ready, however, to fire another shot to make sure we completed our mission. These activities all took place in Brussels or close to it. After a while, we reduced the amount of railway sabotage we did because the Germans retaliated by executing disproportionate numbers of local people. This was too high a price to pay. After a couple of months, our group of 15 had become a hot target. In late February 1943, the leaders decided to ship us to England. We gathered one evening in the basement of a house on the Rue Verte. We were celebrating our imminent departure 
as that night we were going to drive to a place near Antwerp where a plane would land, pick us up, and transport us to England. I'd spent all my Belgian money that afternoon. There wasn't much one could buy in those days, so I bought some silly things just to get rid of the currency, since I thought I'd be in England the next day. I developed the habit of studying every building I entered to devise ways of quickly leaving it. I learned that it was often easy to enter an establishment, but difficult to get out, especially to get out fast. The house we were assembled in that night was one I'd been scrutinizing for some time. We were enjoying the party, happy and optimistic about our travel plans. We ate and drank wine, toasting the group. Our leader, a French officer, was with us. Among us were Soviets and other Eastern Europeans who had escaped from prisoner-of-war camps or deserted the Axis troops. We were all shipping out together. Suddenly, we heard German boots stamping down the steps. Stamp, stamp, stamp. We heard them break through the basement door, and we heard shots being fired. The moment I heard boots, I jumped straight up. I knew that sound, its meaning. Get out or be shot. We would all be dead. I rushed up the inside stairs of the house just as the Germans burst into the basement. The place rattled with gunfire. The Germans had machine guns and heavy ammunition, and we had only small pistols to fight them off. The building we were in was three or four stories high. I raced to the top floor as fast as I could. I knew there was a ledge outside a window. It was the top of a small wall jutting into a courtyard. I thought I would just sit near the window and if they came after me, I'd get out and hide on the ledge. All this took only a few minutes. I heard continuous shooting. Then the boots started up the stairs, stomping into every room. I clambered out on the ledge. Figures appeared at the window and shone strong lights everywhere. They spotted me and yelled, Gib auf! Surrender! The moment I heard that, I jumped down from the high ledge to the courtyard below. I didn't know where I would land. In European cities, the interior courtyards surrounded by buildings and walls are paved with brick or stone. I could have broken my back or legs on the pavement or seriously injured myself. In the moment, I didn't feel anything. I had little time to think. A German came out on the ledge right after I had jumped, shone his flashlight on me and started to shoot. There were several doors leading into the courtyard. I thought, I'll run for a door and try it. If it opens, I'll be able to get away. If it's locked, I'm trapped, cornered. The German kept shooting at me as I scurried toward a door and pushed hard. It opened. I fled through the door into a house. I was in a dark hallway. I ran to the other end of it toward another door. I knew that I had to get out of there. They would likely surround the area and it might have been surrounded already. I opened the front door and stepped onto a street opposite the Rue Verte. I kept on going, going, going. Then I saw a streetcar and jumped on. After a few stops, I transferred to another streetcar going in a different direction. I did this several times until I was far from the Rue Verte. I thought maybe I had been hit somewhere. I was wearing a beret. I removed it. There were five bullet holes in it. But I wasn't hit. This was the closest call that I'd had for some time. People were often being betrayed. Someone must have spilled our plans or unwittingly betrayed us. The French captain who led us was frequently involved with prostitutes on the Rue Velt. Some prostitutes acted as informers for the Germans, and I suspected that one of them had betrayed us to the Gestapo. My career in the underground resistance was over. I couldn't operate effectively in that sphere anymore. 
I was now bent on returning to farming, which is what I'd intended to do immediately after my release from Saint-Gilles. I went to the Austrian woman again, and I told her what had happened. She agreed with my decision. She made inquiries and put me in contact with a Dutchman named Dirk. Dirk was a painter who'd married a Belgian woman and settled in Belgium. He had the ruddy face and blonde hair of Dutchmen depicted in many Flemish and Dutch paintings. He was a burly, jolly, happy-go-lucky man. When I met him, he offered to help me find a job on a farm. He was living north of Brussels, beyond Lachin, in an outer suburb called Strombeek Bever. One Sunday morning, we canvassed the neighborhood farms together. Dirk persuaded a farmer and his wife to hire me, and so I went to work for them. I found a room to rent with a very poor family near the farm. My room cost a trifle, yet it was income for these people. Being able to eat on the farm was a major advantage of farm work since I still didn't have ration tickets. The farming was mixed. There were animals and extensive cropland. The farmer was getting rich by selling on the black market. Grain brought high prices, so workers were denied an extra slice of bread. The farmer's wife was especially miserly and a brutal boss. She wanted maximum work for a minimum amount of food. In her view, the farmhands never worked hard enough and always ate too much. It was a wretched place. I often visited Dirk. He was always in a cheerful mood and would laugh and ridicule all the privations on the farm. He was extremely generous, always offering me a meal. Since I didn't have ration tickets, he shared his rations with me. Sanitary conditions on the farm were also deplorable. One day, my left hand began to swell larger and larger. I bathed it in hot water and swallowed pills given to me by a farmhand, but there was no improvement. After a while, I realized that I had to see a doctor. My hand had become huge and distorted. I appealed to Dirk, whose sister-in-law recommended a young doctor in a district close to where I worked. I went to the doctor and he told me he had to cut it open right away, otherwise I might lose my hand. I had blood poisoning. He made an incision on the back of my left hand between the last two fingers. A gush of blood mixed with pus and dirt spurted out. With no antibiotics available, the hand needed slow, painstaking cleansing. It took more than three days of repeated washing for the infected matter to drain away completely. After approximately a week, my hand healed. The doctor had operated superbly, and I was deeply grateful for what he had done. If Dirk and his sister-in-law hadn't directed me to the doctor, I might have lost my hand. What would I have done then? I doubt that I could have survived the war with only one hand. Manure must have invaded a pimple or blister and infected it. Working in the poorly maintained stable, I had no way to keep my hands clean. The last two fingers of my left hand did not fully regain their strength. For a while, I thought I had lost the ability to milk. Milking requires two strong hands, as pressure has to be applied equally with both. My weak left hand slowed my work for some time, but slowly I retrained it, and the hand recovered its strength. By the time my hand had completely healed and had regained its strength, I realized that I was fed up with this farmer and his stingy wife. They knew I was Jewish and acted nervous and scared and let me know every day that I wasn't welcome there. The man was working again in the coal mines nearby, and so my rent was no longer essential for them. I decided to take a chance somewhere else. I heard talk of a shortage of farm laborers on the other side of Brussels at Waterloo, so I headed there by streetcar. At that time, 
Waterloo was a quiet, rural town set in rich, rolling farmland. I walked down the main street, Chausée de Bruxelles, and stopped at a farm called La Ferme de Mont-Saint-Jean. I asked for work, but no help was needed there. I walked on, past the Gendarmerie police station, and stopped at another farm. I asked the farmer if he needed any help. He asked, You know how to milk? He led me into the barn and told me, Sit down and milk. I sat down and he gave me a pail. He watched as I milked and saw that I milked very well. Good, he said. You've got a job. Jobs were easy to find at that time in Waterloo because the Germans had picked up many young Belgian men and sent them to work in Germany, creating a serious shortage of farmhands. Even so, the farmer in Waterloo was unable to provide me with a bedroom. Since I wanted to live on the farm at least for a while, I suggested to the farmer that I could sleep in the stable, and he agreed. And so I slept in the stable, making up my bed of straw in the corner each night. Sometimes the animals got loose and could have trampled me. Although the situation was precarious in that respect, I felt comfortable there. The farmhouse, kitchen, garden, and barns were in the center of Waterloo. The fields were on the edge of town. Fernand, the farmer, was a young fellow whose father had recently died. He and his elderly mother were running the farm together and needed a great deal of help. They kept 30 or 40 milking cows. I did all the milking by myself. Sometimes they joined me to clean the stables, but they couldn't do this when they had work to do in the fields. Because I did nothing else, I was able to handle the work by myself. I was happy to work all the time. Unfortunately, I couldn't visit Dirk. I couldn't saunter in the streets because of the frequent, heavily armed German patrols in the district. My one diversion was going to the movies. I went on Sundays before the afternoon milking. The town cinema was on the main street, close to the farm. I saw many French films starring the actresses Danielle Derieux, Edwige Fouillère, and Michel Morgan, among others. People were resisting openly in the Waterloo area, with several uprisings occurring at this time and even frequent shootings in the streets. When I drove the cows out to pasture and brought them back in for milking, I would pass by a house behind the communal administration building that I recognized as being used by the resistance. With rebellions so close to the surface, the Germans were massing troops in the area to subdue the population. It was a very volatile spot. In Waterloo, the lice in my hair were again a plague. My hair grew fast in those days, and I had to have it cut often. I would sit in the barber's chair thinking, what if he sees the lice? He'll notice the nits. I'm covered in them. He'll throw me out. The barber wouldn't tolerate lice on his combs and scissors as they could infest a barber shop. I finally decided to do something about the lice. I went to a pharmacy in Waterloo and asked for a remedy. The pharmacy gave me some powder and I used it again and again all over my body. After a while, their numbers seemed to lower and then gradually the lice disappeared. It took a long time to control them because I was still sleeping in the unsanitary stable. I also wasn't changing my clothes enough. I simply couldn't. I didn't have many clothes. Yet I managed to overcome the lice. I had another stubborn problem at the time. After I moved to Waterloo, a boil developed on my neck. Then I was plagued with boils. Large, ugly, painful swellings. They ballooned on my neck and the back of my head. I had one boil after another. A constant affliction. And I had no treatment for them. I let them ripen until they burst, then squeezed them. 
pus poured from them like water. Even now, so many decades later, there are marks on my neck and head where the boils had been. People suggested they were associated with my age, since young adults are susceptible to skin eruptions, but the boils were unusually severe, so I'm inclined to think they were related to either poor hygiene or malnutrition. I walked through Waterloo with the cattle every day, driving them from the stable to the pasture, and then from the pasture back to the stable. The Germans had set up posts to check everybody, but they never questioned me. I went through their check posts time and time again, and they didn't ask me anything. I was Jan von Capella, Vache, cowherd. I was so shabbily dressed and insignificant looking that the Germans never stopped me. I didn't tell anyone in Waterloo that I was a Jew. In Strombeek Bever, the people I'd worked for and those I'd lived with knew I was Jewish. After my experience with them, I stopped identifying myself as a Jew because I'd observed that people were uneasy, tense, and irritable just having me around. It seemed to make them feel guilty. Or maybe they were fearful that they themselves would be arrested. I decided that I wasn't going to mention it again. It was the best way to proceed. It was April 1943, and from then on, I lost my identity completely. I worked extremely hard in Waterloo with never enough to eat. Three slices of bread was the most I was allowed in a meal, and I could have eaten six. I compensated for this by milking directly into my own mouth. Drinking milk straight from the udder never made me sick, possibly because I had developed immunity to the bacteria. The boils, however, may have resulted from drinking the milk this way, but it was necessary to keep my strength up, and I soon grew accustomed to working so hard. Even though I found out later the situation had been quite different from what I was hearing at the time, the Germans had by now conquered most of the Soviet Union and were successful even in Africa. I couldn't conceive of the war ending with anything other than a German victory. It seemed to me sometimes that my struggle was all in vain, that I was straining myself to the limit and that I couldn't win. I wasn't optimistic. What drove me on, however, was the thought of my own premature death. I decided to do whatever I could to hang on to life, to simply stay alive as long as I could. I would continue to scramble through, to see if I could escape whatever decrees the Nazis would make for Jews. I didn't really believe I would succeed, but one thing was certain. I was never going to surrender. I was never going to give myself up to be delivered to a concentration camp. This resolve was foremost in my mind. All my effort was aimed at avoiding the concentration camps. And if I ever did get taken to a concentration camp, I was determined to carry at least one dead German on my back. Fernand, the young farmer in Waterloo, was hoping to get married and took up with several girls. He began to count on having me around. I relieved him of many tasks, and he let me take charge of my own work on the farm. Then he married. His wife moved into the house and proved to be much nicer than him or his mother. She saw that I had few clothes, so she gave me Fernand's old pants and shirts. She was very considerate and tried to help me as much as she could. I had nowhere safe to put my money, so I always kept it with me, hidden in a pocket of my jacket or under my pillow at night. I had also carried my mother's bracelet on me for several years, kept it through all the jails without it being discovered. In one jail, the Gestapo took my jacket away, but when they returned it to me, the bracelet was still in the pocket. One day in Waterloo, the woman asked me to dig up her vegetable garden. 
I dug it up and somehow lost the bracelet. Though I looked for it carefully, I couldn't find it. I never found it after that. In the early fall of 1943, there was a bumper crop of sugar beets which had to be dug out of the ground by hand. Crews of contract workers traveled from farm to farm throughout Belgium to bring in the harvest. A crew came to the farm where I was and worked in the fields for long hours. I would talk with them at night. I became friendly with the leader of the crew who asked me in surprise, Why do you stay in this hole? What are you doing here? It's a miserable job and you never get enough to eat. I had told him about the three slices of bread I received, and he saw it with his own eyes. He said, They're rotten people. All they want is to make loads of money on the black market. The farm's location gave them easy access to the black market trade in Brussels. You get nothing out of this job, he said to me. Why don't you go to Liège in the eastern part of Belgium? You'll find big farms there and nice people and get a good job. The way you work, you'll get the best job in Belgium. You have nothing to worry about. I didn't make a move for a while. I had no legal papers and knew it would be dangerous for me to move across Belgium. The farmers there might not hire someone without papers. Since my release from Saint-Gilles, the identity card had become useless, as my Belgian alias was probably on a Gestapo list. But in October of 1943, I had reached the limit with three slices of bread, unending work, and sleeping in the stable. It simply wasn't right. Living like that was so demeaning that I thought, I'm barely surviving. Who knows how much longer this war will last? I couldn't see an end in sight. There were employment agencies at the time that placed workers with farmers needing hands. The migrant workers gave me the name of an agent in the region near Liège. I wrote to the agent. He answered and told me to go to a specific farm. I decided that I would take the chance. Maybe I would find a different way of life. So in hopes of improving my situation, after six months of sleeping in that stable, I was on the move again.